The Apostle Paul, when he is on death row, writes to the closest person on this planet to him, his beloved Timothy. And he tells him about how to keep life in perspective when things are tough. If you have your Bible, would you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to 2 Timothy 2, page 966 in your pew Bible. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. As Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him that he's going to go through tough times, but that's all right. And to remember why we are on this earth. If you're visiting, we read this together out loud as a sign of God's community. So you need to have a Bible in your hands. If not, just hum Amazing Grace. Either way, that'll work. And then when we get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. So let's read this. And as you read, listen very carefully, you're reading God's written word. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust the faithful people who will be able to reach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one suffering in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. In the case of an athlete, No one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but those words will last forever. As we look at this series and we come to this 8th century, the question is... What about Christians and political power? It was Will Rogers who quipped, the difference between organized crime and the government is that one is organized. (laughs) What about it when Christians enter into this world? As we said, as we're looking at the 8th century, and why study church history, uh, excuse me, the 9th century, is because, one, they have successfully faced Many of the challenges you and I are going to face in front of us. And they show us how to run the gauntlet, if we can learn from them. And second of all, as we hook together and minister with these other churches, like next week at St. Sophia's at the Greek Orthodox and others, the more you know about their backgrounds, the more you can understand, ah, that's why they do what they do. We're entering now the dark ages, as the Renaissance would later call this time. With the collapse of and the death of Charlemagne in the West and the Empress Irene in the East, what was left of the Carolingian Renaissance starts to break up. When the Roman Empire fell, we saw last week, the church found itself in a world that was brutal and totally tearing apart. It'd be like if you were on the big ocean liner, the Roman Empire, and it sank, and you found yourself in a little rowboat. And now the rowboat was starting to get smacked by waves. The Vikings were invading from the north, the Saracens from the south, the Magyars from the east. And on top of that, the people that you thought were your family on the other end of the boat don't like the way you're praying, so they come to the end of your boat and shoot a hole in it so you'll sink. That's how the church found itself. And God, once again, raises up men and women to respond to times of terrible, tough times. And the Frank way of doing church, the the Germanic tribes, as they convert to Christianity, they teach us one really important lesson for you and I as we go into these 
financial and politically challenging times in world history and here in America and in Los Angeles. Remember this. We're called to respond, not react, to an ever-changing world. We are called to respond to an ever-changing world with the unchanging power of the love of Christ, not aligning ourselves with power brokers. And as society falls apart, we learn the church at its highest. When it learns to respond, rather than just reacting, they are the ones that end up winning. You can't stop what people or control are going to do to you. You cannot control this world. But you can control how you respond to it rather than just reacting. And when the Holy Spirit raises men and women and fills them, we find in the middle of this horribly tough, brutal time that God raises up the right people to respond in the right way. And ironically, how the church in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, think of castles to know how brutal it is and think of cathedrals. Because when the people came in and worshipped, then they had the power to go out into a very tough terrifying world. And Bel Air, with our mission, whether down at the bridge or here or in the other locations as God leads us, we're not trying to just make a bunch of little Bel Airs. We're trying to get a good virus going here so that other churches will learn how to work with each other and love each other. But we'll never change this city out there except how you and I worship in here. I mean that. The authenticness of what you are doing right now in here will determine how effective we are out there. And in the ninth century, the world looked like it was going to hell. And as the people came together and worshipped, they found great power. The irony is, what busted the church was how they worshipped between the East and the West. I have down here a picture of Jesus, which I painted this morning. No, that's not true. Um, (laughs) It's from Henry Hoffman in 1869. It's a beautiful picture. It's just entitled, Jesus at 30. And trying to reflect who he is. I also have over here a crucifix. A statue of Jesus on the cross. I'm going to wear this to lunch. I don't know what it will do. but (laughs) This was considered a teaching aid to the Western church. Because they were illiterate. And it showed them who they were. And another reason the West liked statues is it showed they weren't Muslim or Jew. Because a Muslim or Jew would never have an image inside. The East said that is idolatry. Because your people don't know what they're doing and they're ending up worshipping these carvings. And so instead, when we go down to St. Sophia's next week, you'll see all these icons. Never three-dimensional. But the truth in the middle of all this toughness is it's, it's out of their worship that we find God gives strength. Worship a lot of times... I don't know if you know this or not, but some churches actually fight over the different kinds of music. Do you know that? <laughs> and what's interesting in that is that when we go and like we worship down at Faithful Central, I love to worship the great throwdown black gospel. It is just so much fun. They do things like say, amen. And they teach us that, amen. And we teach them to Shh, be quiet. A story of the little boy is taking the church for the first time with his Presbyterian father. And he's sitting in the church and he goes, Dad, what's that? And he goes, shh, 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 shh. And he's going, Dad, what's that? And he's looking around. And then he saw these names up on the front. And he said, Dad, who is that? And he said, those are the men who died in the service. And he said, which one, the nine or the eleven? <laughs> 
And I want to tell you, sometimes when you preach in a Presbyterian church, well, anyway, uh, we'll move ahead. You got your Bible. Turn with me back over to 2 Timothy on page 966. We are called to respond to an ever-changing world, not react. Because when people get you to react, they win a second time. No matter what someone does to you or what someone does to the church, when you choose to respond rather than just react, they only win once. And you get the final win. Look what Paul says to his beloved adopted son. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust the faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Pause. He is saying, Timothy. Now he, Paul knows he's going to be executed. He won't be crucified as Peter already has been crucified. Paul won't be because he's a Roman citizen. And no Roman citizen could be crucified unless you were ran away in battle or you tried to kill Caesar. So he will be beheaded. And he knows he's about ready to leave. And he's writing to Timothy, saying, Timothy, Timothy, stand strong in the grace of Christ. And you teach others. Remember what I taught you, Timothy? Now you teach others. That's why you're here. And there are a lot of us here sitting in this room right now. God is calling you to reach out and to be one of these leaders of these small groups. He's not. How are you going to learn until you learn by doing and by stepping up and saying, I want to take a leadership role in that? It doesn't mean you have to know everything. It doesn't mean you have to have it all together. Look at your pastors. It just means you're willing to say, Lord, I want to be used. And he's telling Timothy that. And look what he says, verse 3. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. Paul, as he's looking at the Roman guards guarding him, he's now in Rome. He's on death row. And he thought those Roman centurions, when Rome sent their soldiers around the world and they occupied lands, the soldiers didn't come and open up a business. They didn't try to be voted the most popular. They didn't try to change anything except that bit of soil they were responsible for, that six square feet for the glory of Rome. You're not here on this planet to be voted the most popular. You have a higher calling. Your allegiance is to the one who enlisted you. The word ecclesia of Greek called out from the crowd. You and I aren't here to be just control things and make life the way we go or just to get wealth to enjoy it like it's some kind of uh, extended vacation. We're here because we're called to love. Now, here's what's interesting. The more you're attached to the eternal, the more you can transform the temporal. The more you remember that you belong to heaven as your citizenship, the more we can be good citizens here. But it's not about being whether you are rich or poor, whether you are in whatever station you are at. It's not about being Democrat or Republican. Though it's important that, yeah, vote. But you don't trust the people you vote in ultimately. If you do, good luck. You trust the kingmaker himself, God. Yes, you're called to organize and to work for issues you believe in. But you don't trust in your organization. You trust in the life giver, Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, In the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. 
You know what's a mocked phrase today? It's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Is never said today without mocking it. But actually, it's so true. The points you have, and he, Paul looking at the Greek games, some people ran and they won the marathons or whatever first, or the torch races that they did, but they had to stand before the bema, which you'll hear sometime called this, he'll call the judgment seat. And then they determine, did someone run out of their lines? Did they compete according to the rules or not? Whether they won or not. Hey, there's a lot of people that you and I know, and on the outside it looks like they're winning. And when they stand in front of Christ, it's going to be one shocking moment. Jesus said, many who were last will be first. And many who are first will be the very last. Because it does matter. And that's why we don't have to have importance in the eyes of others. If God puts you in that place, wonderful. But that's all passing away. It's do we behave by heaven's rules, not by this earth's. It is the farmer that works the hardest that gets the first food. There's a lot of people right now that are riding along. I call them third basemen. They were born on third and they think they hit a triple. But it's just because they were born into the lucky gene pool or born into the lucky situation of talent or whatever. And there's nothing a matter with that. But we got to get a perspective here. And Paul is telling Timothy to do that. When you look at the ninth century, which nine centuries after Paul writes this, and remember how the church expands with this map that we have of Christianity from the birth of Christ and as it moves ahead and it grows and it starts to move around the Mediterranean world. As Hinduism and Buddhism is there and as the birth of Islam, of course, takes ahead and starts to explode on out. And like I said before, if you weren't here, the blue are the good guys. But as... As Islam raises its head and it starts to interact with the empire, as it moves along that all of a sudden the empire of Rome falls apart. And what happens at that moment now is that they start to look to how to be connected. What's interesting is when the Vikings start to arrive and as they start to come down from the north, as you look at that, that all of a sudden... A new invader comes, and an invader like they have not seen. Now, they have seen the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals. These Vikings are some wild boys. St. Andrews, if you've ever been there, when I was studying, if you look at the sands, it's right by the uh, golf course there. When the first monks came out to meet the first Viking invaders to tell them the good news, the Vikings greeting them, lined up all the priests, cut their heads off, and make a pyramid out of their skulls. That's how they say hello. And these, at this time, so all of a sudden society falls apart. And what happens in the middle of that is there's this reconnecting, the beginning of feudalism. Feudalism is when you're no longer loyal to Rome. There's no empire. The person that has money, and money only came from landowners. Because there's no manufacturing, there's no trade really going on. It's people that had the land. Rome had these communal farms. Now it's just those who own it. And what happens is there's three different classes of people. There are the nobles who own the land. There are the peasants who work the land, or the serfs. There are the clergy who teach and give meaning to life. The nobles who own the land, most of them were illiterate. They studied for one thing, battle. This is the days of the knights in shining armor. And they made a deal with you. When these raiding Vikings came in, when the Saracens or the Mayagars 
Who rode out to face them in battle? You went running into the walls of the castle to be protected. They went riding out to die to protect you. In fact, because they only studied about battle and they were illiterate, that in the boring times they came up with these tournaments of jousting and fighting to entertain themselves. If you were a peasant, if you were a serf, and you worked for this plot of land because it couldn't be traded and sold, you had protection, but you had to give over probably around half of what you grew, and you lived off the other. The clergy were the only ones that had access to knowledge. What if in Los Angeles, the only people that had a computer or knew how to work it were pastors? Society would end. No, I'm just kidding about it. But what if we were the only ones that had access to that? Well, they had access to reading and to particularly for the scriptures and for teaching. And they gave meaning. And in the Middle Ages, the clergy could be in three classes, professionals. You were a doctor or a lawyer or a priest. Something that they did for you, you couldn't do for yourself. By the way, in the Middle Ages, how they handled a disease, they either used potions or they burned it or they cut it. Today we have chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. Very similar to the same. What Our lawyer would be there to read and to defend your rights, what somebody was trying to do. And the clergy were the ones there to help give meaning to life and to be able to explain to you what life was about. And as they came together in worship, and people were dying, like I said, at this time, the bubonic plague hit Europe in different forms ten different times within 800 years. The worst being in the 13th century, which will one out of three people in here would die. As we said before, you first notice it by sneezing. That's why when someone sneezes today, you say, God bless you, because they thought you were on the way out. Why, if someone coughs today, you just go gross. When someone sneezes, God bless you. What's that from? That's from this time, because you died so fast. And as the church comes together in worship, that all of a sudden they develop this new sense of power. You know, you, the priest came up here and he alone, and even though the service was in Latin and the people spoke other languages, the sermon time, the homily, was given in the native vernacular. So they could understand it. That's why they used statues. That's why they used stained glass to tell the stories as they came in. You are, I don't care whether you are a noble, a peasant, or a clergy. Whether you are educated, blue-collar, working, married, single. You are, according to the Bible, a priest. Yes, you are. Do you think about those people in your life? Do you intercede on their behalf? Do you literally bring God's grace to them? You are a holy people, a royal priesthood, Peter says. And so now that every one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, dwells within you. Oh, my goodness. Do you know what that means? That you say, oh, Lord, I'm ready. I'm about time to step up and to be used in a new kind of way. Allegiances, not only were they learning to respond in God's power of God's grace, but to be aligned to new allegiances. You can't be aligned to the empires anymore. They're gone. So you did it to the chieftain. And the church unknowingly helped break up the world. Because now these Germanic, these Frank tribes, didn't have allegiance just to their clan, but to anybody who was Christian. And there's a higher allegiance out there. 
Doesn't it bother you when people change allegiances? You have one set of friends and another set of friends and they go out to dinner and they don't invite you. Doesn't that bother you? Happens to me all the time, but doesn't that bother you? Why? Because you're thinking, wait, are we rewriting this? Have you noticed that all of a sudden that business is not loyal to their employees? And employees, still their business is blind. They're not loyal to them. In the church, I always laugh. I have so many people come up to me and they'll tell me, and they apologize. They go, Mark, I'm sorry, but I'm going to a new church. Like I own them. They belong to Christ. You are the bride of Christ. One thing I've learned from doing a lot of weddings, never flirt with the bride in the presence of the groom. Don't ever do that. And Christ thinks that you belong to Him. You know, I tell you, different teams, same jerseys, go somewhere you can fit. Now, most Christians, though, leave churches because we don't like this thing called accountability. We don't like people getting too close to us and getting into our stuff. And so we can go and continue to be anonymous. That's why it's so important. You only submit to people you trust. And when you have a group of people that you know and trust, you're willing to say, hey, keep me in line. And as the church continues to move and as they continue to be invaded, God raises up people. Two brothers in particular, God raised up. Cyril and Methodius of Thessalonica. Aren't they party animals? These guys were raised, and as these invading Vikings, as well as the Mayagars, were coming along, they learned Hebrew so they could go evangelize the Jews, which right now the church didn't care about. They learned Arabic so they could go interact with the Muslims that were invading. And they went, and, they, and these invading Slavs, S-L-A-V means the word, were illiterate. They had no alphabet. This guy, Cyril, sits down and creates the first alphabet for them is why all of your Russian and Slavic friends use the Cyrillic alphabet. It's from this guy. He will eat some bad meat, be poisoned and die. And, and they, I think his last journal was, never eat meat that's green. No, I don't know if I said that or not. But as he dies, his brother takes over. And as he moves ahead as Methodius. He goes and preaches to the Germanic. But he believes in not having statues, but he believes in having just icons. And so this German king throws him in a hole in the ground for three years. And finally, the Pope intercedes on his behalf and he gets loose and he tells the good news of Christ until his death. But what really busted the East and the West in three centuries was a fight over the word phililoquy. Got your Bible. One last passage. Turn with me over to John, the 15th chapter, page 878 in your pew Bible. And it's a debate over who sent the Holy Spirit and how does Jesus relate to the Father. The word phililoquy, the Latin meaning is from the Son. See verse 26 and 27. This literally split an empire. Let's read this together out loud. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Who sends the Spirit? Jesus said, I will send the Spirit, but here he says, who proceeds from the Father. 
The East said that the Holy Spirit, He came from the Father. Because the Son is different than the Father, though they're both divine. The West said the Holy Spirit comes from the Spirit, or from the Son and the Father. He's the relationship between the two, but He has will and desire. One God, three persons. We can't understand it, but we can embrace it. And the East went, you guys speak a bad language. The East spoke Greek. They spoke Latin. The West said, you don't even know how to understand the Trinity. The East said, you worship statues. And they said, all right, we're out of here in the 11th century. There are times that you and I need, of course, to be friends to everybody. Always being friends to people, no matter what they think or believe. To love them. God loves the just and the unjust. God loves the smart and the dumb. God loves the faithful and the unfaithful. But there will come a time when we don't align ourselves with something that is going against the gospel of Christ. But how often we leave churches fall so short of that level of issue. It's unbelievable. I know more people that choose not to go worship at some church because the pastor said something or they play the wrong music or they don't have the right Sunday school curriculum or whatever it is or they don't have parking. Well, that's a serious thing. No, no matter what it is, learning to commit to each other is how we grow because as you come here, the smartest thing you do is we learn how to worship together. Now, do you need good theology? Yes. When Yitzhak got up with Yo-Yo Ma to play for the inauguration, are they incredible musicians? If you would have given them a kazoo and an auto harp, I don't care how good they are, it would have been a little less. And if the only theology you've got is Jesus loves me, this I know, rather than knowing this word and the deep things of theology, you're going to miss the glory and the wonder of who God is as you go through this life. But remember, it's all about your heart as you sit in here, not your head. Why did you get up this morning... And get dressed and come here. Some of you are probably really wondering. I don't know, Mark. Go ahead. (laughs) Because you're smart. You can worship God anywhere. When we were going to seminary, we were studying to love God. So we didn't go to a church a lot. We worshiped at St. Mattress. (laughs) Just sleep in, you know. But I want to tell you, it makes a difference. When you get up and you get dressed, and you come here to worship the Lord, something you can do anywhere. It touches God, and it changes you. Remember this about worship. You become what you worship, and you follow what you proclaim. You become, you are a worshiper. I don't know what you worship, but you will become like the thing that is the most important in your life. And when Christ is the most important thing, and and you worship Him, you become like that. And by getting up and coming here, it touches God. When I give Carolyn roses for no reason, I remember this both times. (laughs) Well, she can go out and look at roses anywhere. I mean, what's that is that? Because it says something. And when you get up and you make the effort to say, I'm going to go worship the Lord, it says something. And it changes you. Because when I give her roses or I'm nice to her, all of a sudden, I'm a pretty cool guy. You notice when you express something that you intensify the feeling? When you're feeling love and you say, I love you, you feel more love at that moment. 
when you're mad and you go, I'm ticked, at that moment, your adrenaline goes up. If you say, I'm afraid, and you say out loud, I'm afraid, at that moment, you're more afraid, even though later it vents and comes down. When we say, God, I love you, and all the things of life, and you didn't come in here for the emotions. You came in here because of the events of life that give emotions. When things are going well, do you say, I'm going to go to the Lord. One of the fun things Roger will say about being a pastor, you know what's a rare call? Hey, things are going good. I think I'll call my pastor. <laughs> you don't hear that a lot. When things are going wrong, you do. But when you come in here as David, he got so excited, he danced naked before the ark. That's getting a little carried away in worship. In tough times, you don't have to feel like you have a lot of affection for God. Job loses his entire family and he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And I believe through clenched teeth, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't get it, but I trust him. Though he slay me, Job said, I will trust him. That changed Job. How come the Israelites, everywhere they go, they're building an altar to pray to God? Because in the everyday stuff of life, not the high times and the low times, but the fabric of everyday life, God wants to share in the driving and the getting up and going to school, going to work, and the dating and the marriage and the job. He wants to come alongside and to give us power to go out and to reach and to change others. And when you proclaim something, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you shall love the, your neighbor as you love yourself. You say that, and it changes the GPS of your life coordinates. The Carolingians were known for, of course, everybody. There were no pro- volunteer armies. They were professional. Half of the armies at this time were mercenary. A lot of them were from the barbarians that came in, and they did horrible things in the name of the church. They weren't believers. They were just hired guns. But the Carolingians not only had great men in battle, they also had... Devout men of prayer, Charlemagne made sure they were Christian. The Vikings hired mercenaries by the name, their name was Berserker. You heard of going berserk? It came from these boys. They would drug themselves up. They'd go into battle half naked. They tried to die. They were just out of control. So much so, the Vikings had to banish them after they got done raiding because they so didn't trust these guys. The Berserkers feared nobody... But the Carolingians, and what they feared about the Carolingians was when they heard them sing praises before they went into battle. Terrified them. Because they knew that this other side had an allegiance that was higher. This is not a neutral playing field. There is a spiritual war going on. A real one. Real bullets. And the other side is terrified when you praise and when you pray because the king himself comes and not only stands by you, but gives you his peace and power. You feel like your world's ripping apart? Well, the Franks have something to teach. Yeah, you need to respond, but don't react. Don't think that the power brokers out there are going to be the ones that are going to save you. Yeah, make relationships. But you respond with the love of Christ. God have you in a place in life. You're going, Lord, I should be the one running everything. Remember? God, I should be the one with all of that. Lord, how come I'm a peasant? 
Rather than complaining, yeah, try to change if you can. You're born in an amazingly free and mobile society. But wherever you're at, do not forget to learn from the Carolingians that as you worship the Lord and call upon Him, that He will transform. Who is worship for? Hey, next week, when you come, would you do something here to worship? For five minutes during the worship service, would you pray for the people in front of you and behind you? Look at their heads if they're behind you. Pray for their haircut. I don't know what it is. But you pray that God would touch their life. And He'll hear that and He'll answer. And when you come in here, yes, come with others, but come alone. Because worship is for the audience of one. It's Him who says, I love you. And stretches out his hand on this cross and says, this much. Let's pray, shall we? God, I thank you that you, in your sovereign will, decreed that we should be born into this place at this time. And God, who you hold all of history and all of space in the palm of your hand. You, the great one, whom the stars and the angels and the cosmos sings your glory. Nothing touches your heart more than when one of us calls you Abba, Father, and loves you. Lord, I pray that right now that you would come and that you would raise up the right people. Thank you, Lord, as we form new groups and as groups change people and as we move around, as we come around your word to God, you would raise up the right leaders to come and to love and to guide. Thank you, Lord, for our brothers and sisters downtown as well as here at Bel Air and around this city. And Lord, as we try to make this the greatest city for your son, we trust and give it to you. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you. Take our praise. Take our offerings. Take our lives. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.